Hey, it's Jamie West for Scott Thompson on the podcast. Listen, we've got a, a great discussion coming up here with Dr. David Fisman. He's a professor in the Department of Epidemiology about measles and about how important public health departments are in our lives. Also on the show, Klaus Wagner, constable with uh, the Hamilton Police Service, talking about increases in posted speed limits that the province has announced. And we're going to talk, too, about distracted driving and all things automobile. And also on the show, we're going to talk about the weekend effect and why you're working too hard. All of that and more coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. All right, measles warning. Uh, possible exposure at uh, Pearson Airport and the Toronto Zoo. This is, you know, we're hearing a lot about measles outbreaks uh, south of the 49th and spreading all over the place. Um, two confirmed cases of measles in adults in Toronto are both travel-related. The city's public health unit uh, said yesterday as it warned the public of possible places where they may have been exposed uh, to the virus. The latest incidents bring the total measles uh, cases in the city this year to five, according to Toronto Public Health data. There were five confirmed cases last year. Four were related to travel, and the city has been averaging five cases of measles per year over the last five years. Uh, but they're thinking that this year <clears throat> could break that trend. Um, yeah, so we'll, uh, you know what? Get vaccinated. Um, the good news in, in Toronto, because that's what we're talking about here, is 92% of people are, are vaccinated, but there's no reason for anybody to not be vaccinated. David Fisman is a professor in the Department of Epidemiology. Uh, Dell Atlanta School of Public Health, the University of Toronto. Uh, David, welcome to the program. Thanks very much. Thanks for having me. Um, you know, we talked there about two cases of measles in adults were confirmed yesterday. They're both travel-related. Um, this is the thing, too, right? It, compared to the old days, uh, we sure get around on this planet, not like we used to even 40 or 50 we, years ago. We do. You don't You don't need to, to get on the steamship at one end and spend yeah. two months... Yeah. Big factor. Yeah. I mean, everything moves faster and everything's, there are more of us, you know, there's, there's uh, the global population's a lot bigger, Um, but some things haven't changed. Uh, You you know, measles is the most infectious, infectious disease there is. Sorry, I have a bit of feedback there. I'm not sure if that's normal. Um, I'm not either. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Um, can you hear us okay? I can hear you fine. I can fine. hear you, yeah. Okay. I kind of feel like I'm in the echo chamber. But the um, important thing to, you, you've already nailed it, um, the important thing is that people get vaccinated. There's actually very little that you can do if there are infectious cases of measles around you. There's little you can do to protect yourself. You can't outrun this. It's the most infectious disease there is, and it's airborne. Mm-hmm. So whether you were at the zoo or not, whether you were at Pearson or not, you don't know whether you walked past one of these folks on the street, you, you know, whether you were on a streetcar with them, what, ha- what have you. So the way we control measles and the way we made measles go extinct in Canada in the year 2000 is just to have high vaccination coverage in the population. And uh, we've let that slip a bit, and we need to get back there. Is that because of um, the anti-vax people? Like People like to focus on anti-vaxxers because they view them, rightfully so, as ignorant people. But, they, yeah. but, but is it also just a case of genuine um, organic ignorance on the part of people and, and laziness? 
you know, it's it's a combination of factors. Um, the New Zealand uh, health minister referred to anti-vaxxers this week as as not being anti-vax but pro-plague, and yeah. I kind of like that. Yeah, I do too. Um, <laughs> so let's let's maybe use it. But in terms of the pro-plague folks, <laughs> um, I think they're part of the issue, and their message has been amplified by the internet and social media and so forth. But to a certain extent, measles programs have been a victim of their own success. Uh, remember, we did eliminate this disease in Canada and the United States in 1999-2000. Right, so nothing so to worry about. We can get there. So exactly. So, so you know, what are these crazy public health people talking about when they say, I need to get vaccinated against a disease that's not happening here? That, that sounds kind of nuts. The problem is that as long as there's measles anywhere on planet Earth, as you point out, we're highly connected now. We have massive measles outbreaks going on in Europe. Um, uh, Ukraine is the big one at the moment, but there have been recent measles epidemics in France, Switzerland, Italy, you name it. Um, Those folks are going to come to Canada. Some of those folks are going to come to Canada. So if we're highly vaccinated, they can come here and nothing happens. That's that herd immunity idea. Uh, but if you import cases and folks are under vaccinated, then it's going to take off like a wildfire. Right. It's like it's the spark on a pile of dry brush. It's going to start going. And, Bingo. you know, um, so, uh, you know, again, that this um, misconception or false sense of security that's created by what you said earlier, which is we beat this thing right back to nothing. Yeah. That people get it in their heads, too, that then if we were able to beat it back to nothing, then it must be nothing. And measles is not nothing. Give people an idea of what it's like to be sick with measles. Well, measles is a pretty miserable um, illness, mostly for kids, although we do have some vulnerable adults in the population. Typically, the way it uh, manifests is as uh, it starts with red eyes, runny nose, cough, sore throat, but then it moves down from your, your mouth and throat down into the lungs. And the bad complication that's common from measles is it predisposes people uh, to pneumonia, which is a bacteria infection in your lungs that people can die from. The other thing that measles can do rarely, about one in a thousand cases, is it can go to the brain and that can cause brain damage or death. So the math on this is pretty unforgiving. Basically, for every thousand cases of measles, you're going to get a death. Um, and we're nowhere near a thousand cases in Canada. Uh, they're pushing a thousand in the states. They're up around 900 cases now. So you know with certainty you're you're going to start seeing people with brain infection and death. And it's just so unnecessary, you know. Yeah. Do do legislators ever get epidemiologists and medical people into a room and? And, and say to them, you know, you guys are the experts on all of this stuff. What do we need to do as politicians and, and legislators to make your lives easier here and get well, your message through? Do I they mean, ever do that? Do they ever consult with you? My guess is they don't. They, they, no, they do. They do. I mean, and then they ignore you. <laughs> well, listen, uh, I used to be a medical officer of health in Hamilton. I worked in Ontario during SARS. Um, we need strong public health in the in the province, and I think we do this somewhat backwards because we 
allow conditions that let public health disasters happen, and then we say, oh, we need to strengthen public health. To me, a lot of this stuff's very predictable. And for example, I'm going to make your listener whose email you you read mad. Go for it. That's what we're in the business of doing here. It's talk radio. One of the things I was going to ask you, actually, if the premier wrote that that email. (laughs) um, One of the things you don't do if you're interested in preventing communicable diseases is you don't cut public health budgets because it actually requires people and stuff and resources to keep vaccine rates high to make sure that, you know, we're, we're protected from these diseases. So, so public health to me um, is, is sort of the seatbelt or the motorcycle helmet. If you want to talk about, you know, the economy in the 21st century, we're racing along in this hyper com- competitive, fast moving, uh, booming economy. You, you still want to wear a crash helmet in case things go wrong. And, and, you know, in terms of international connectedness, that crash helmet is uh, having strong public health infrastructure. So to me, if you want prosperity, that's awesome. Part of protecting yourself in the context of global trade, travel, commerce, is making sure your public health system is also up to snuff. Well, I should have had you on four segments ago when we discussed the province's plan, for example, to merge Hamilton Public Health with Niagara, Brant, and Haldeman, Norfolk, and I know this is going on all over the yeah. all over the province. We're in Hamilton, so we're talking about what our uh, medical officer of health is is saying based on meetings she's having with with people here locally. And 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 I've said people don't even understand what public health is, what a public health uh, agency or a department is or does. They they think that it's all one thing, and when we took calls on it. People were confusing it with hospital amalgamation, right? And it's got one there's nothing to do with that. Well, uh, as I tell, as I tell my students, you know, medicine. And I also practice medicine. Is about taking people when they're sick and restoring them to health. The idea with public health is that you don't get sick in the first place, hmm. um, and so that they're related, but they're different. And the problem with public health is it's silent. When it's working well, you don't notice it because nothing's happening. But that's that's our deliverable. Our deliverable is making nothing happen so people can live their lives and do business and enjoy themselves and enjoy their families. Um, because, you know, epidemics and outbreaks and getting sick from water, getting sick from bad food, those are... Uh, <laughs> You know, those those aren't things we seek out. So you don't want those in your life. It's and, kind of yeah. interesting, pre, pre, you know, as you point out, rightfully, prevention is is everything. And then and then when you put that into the context of uh, the acute uh, care system, uh, you know, you have medical professionals saying, you know, if we could stop people from flooding this ER, if we could stop people from flooding this hospital um, with some preventative type education that would preserve their health in the first place we wouldn't have these monetary issues at the acute care level it's all connected right and it absolutely listen one very tiny little slice of the pie i practice clinical infectious disease medicine here in toronto a big area that i do consults in is diabetic foot ulcers you know public health is working actively on health promotion healthy lifestyles get our diabetes and obesity rates down because by the time someone sees me because they have bone infection from diabetes, you know, they're seeing me 20, 20 years too late. Right. So the idea with public health is that that person never gets to that point um, because that's a, that's a 
huge cost to society. It's a huge cost to the individual. People lose legs. They can't work, what have you. I mean, that's all economic damage down, downstream. If you want to look at it through a purely economic lens, we're, we're burning money on that. Do you so th- the idea is spend it upstream uh, right. to prevent that. What, what's, so I'm going to ask you the question because this was, a, I, I know we brought you on to talk about the measles thing and we've kind of yeah. done that. And, and uh, I, I, since I've got you, I'm taking the opportunity. The, the idea of, um, of cutting public health units down from whatever it is, 30, 30 some odd to 10 uh, across the province. What does it say here? 32 public health units into 10. What, what what do you think about that? You're an expert in that field. What are your well, thoughts? I, I'm, I'm actually, I wouldn't regard myself as an expert in that field. What, what I do have as my background is I worked as a medical officer of health in Hamilton. Close, good enough for our show. Good enough for your yeah, show. Yeah, your, your opinion I, matters. Can I tell you a story and I'll try and keep it brief? Take as much time as you want. Okay, so so... I was medical officer of health in Hamilton from uh, 2000 to 2003, and I worked in the sexually transmitted infection program. Now, in the 1990s, syphilis, I don't know if you've heard of that. Yes, nasty disease. Nasty infectious disease. We didn't have any in Ontario. Okay, it was gone. Uh, I don't know why, but I have some ideas, but I don't know why. But um, we started seeing syphilis in Hamilton I believe it was in 2002, and our very very first case of syphilis was a, a, a young fellow who had traveled into Toronto and had some risk behaviors in Toronto, then come back to Hamilton, got diagnosed with syphilis, and we compared notes with some of the other health units around because you know we weren't seeing syphilis, we thought it was gone, and now all of a sudden it's back, and Guelph was seeing syphilis, and Durham was seeing syphilis, hmm. and you basically had. These health units around Toronto were all seeing a resurgence of this disease. Um, the one and and in guys who were traveling into Toronto for sex, right, right. The one place that wasn't seeing syphilis or wasn't reporting syphilis was Toronto. Yeah, because they and, were taking it out. Well, what happened was remember the Toronto, the megacity, had come into being. I think a couple of years before this. Right. So they took five health units that were functional, healthy health units that worked, and shoehorned them into one mega health unit. And my worry with going from thirty-five to twenty-five or thirty-five to ten or whatever the current numbers is, there's a lot of local wisdom. You talk to the folks at the Hamilton Health Department; they know Hamilton. They know where stuff goes down. They know who the bad actors are. They know what the hazards are. You can't get that kind of granular understanding of where the risks and the hazards are in a city from 100 miles away. Um, so it's a it's a local function, and I don't I don't want Toronto Public Health to get any bigger than it is because I live here, and if I were in Hamilton, I would absolutely not want the Hamilton Health Department being merged with other health departments because you're going to lose focus and you're going to lose wisdom and you're going to lose skill. That's a pretty uh, strong statement. And I, and, and I think that's that plays to what I had said earlier about people sometimes don't know what they got till it's gone. And, and if, you know, and if they hear conversations like this, they might wake up and they might um, educate themselves a little bit more, and then they might actually be motivated to uh, voice up and and say something. 
And and I think the province maybe in this case, and that's a political discussion, I realize, um, is counting on people sleeping at the switch on it and not understanding. And it's, it's it might be an easy cut for them to make. On the other hand, they may be trying to create a, a crisis and a furor and then ride in uh, later and, and look like heroes, which is also a yeah. political tactic uh, as well that doesn't serve anybody. But uh, that's, boy, that is... Uh, that's fascinating, and yeah. So public health, really, uh, Doctor Fisman is is a is a first true first line of defense, right, against everything. It is, and it makes us. I mean, when, again, I'll say it again: when public health is working well, the idea is for you not to notice us. Our deliverable is nothing happening. When we're doing our jobs well, there's nothing to see, which is really hard to translate to people and say, "Look, you know." This is what you're paying for. This is what our budget's for, is for stuff not to happen. Um, but but that, I think that's hard for folks to wrap their minds around. So we're always a bit of an easy target. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, you're welcome back here anytime to have uh, further discussions. I really enjoyed the chat today. Dr. David Fisman, yeah, a profe- professor in the Department of Ep- Epidemiology, Dalalana School of Public Health, University of Toronto. Uh, really appreciate this. Have a great day. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. We're going to talk about speeds on the highways. Um, Last week, um, the Minister of Transportation announced that as part of uh, a pilot project, the stretch between St. Catharines and Hamilton on the QEW is going to be one of the areas tested for higher speeds of 110 kilometers an hour. Uh, but is it uh, going to do any good or could it make things worse? I don't think this whole idea or whole issue of uh, posted speed limits on highways is a simple uh, issue. And um, I think that uh, you've got a lot of things that factor into that. You've got um, the size of uh, different vehicles, the the way the the road surface sets up, the you know whether it's a, a curving highway, whether it's a straight highway, um, there's all kinds of things. And we haven't even started about to talk about how distracted driving factors into um, speed limits because we haven't had distracted driving um, as a thing really um, for a very long time. Like we, we, it's only been about 10 years that we've had these mini computers in our hands. And more and more as I drive around, I, I can see how law enforcement I feel I feel sorry for law enforcement because I don't think they have a chance, not a hope, of being able to even put it, start to put a dent into distracted driving. It's got to become a social, um, total social faux pas. You've got to be a social outcast. That's what has to happen. Just like the drinking and driving campaigns of the 1980s managed to do. You know, we managed to get those numbers way, way down because... Um, we did all the messaging, we did all the education, and we held each other accountable uh, for what we were doing behind the wheel and with our friends. And it worked. It really did. Um, I don't know whether that's going on here. But anyway, I'm getting, as, I, as usual, I've gone off in a million different directions. I've taken this octopus and added a million tentacles to it. We've got a guest to talk about it, Klaus Wagner, constable with the uh, and traffic specialist with the Hamilton Police Service, frequent guest on the program. Klaus, thanks for the time today. Jamie, it's been a while. Thank you for calling. You heard my uh, ranting and, and, and raving there, but let's let's get down to posted speed limits on highways. First of all, 
Um, and I know you're going to be careful because you're a cop and cops are being careful about what they say about the increase, uh, the pilot project to increase posted speed limits on, on highways. W- just in general, uh, what do you think about that? Okay. So first I have to say, you know, just to make our OPP friends, so Hamilton Police, we don't... <laughs> I know, you uh, don't patrol the 400 we, we series highways the in the QE. Highways, I know. But we get, we get the offshoot of that, and that's the Red Hill Valley, sure. Main Street, Burlington Street, because it's like any time that you're coming from a major highway down to, it's hard to slow down our, our speed that way. You know, we're, you know, so if we're doing 110 or 120, whatever the, the government decides, you know, now you're coming on to, say, Burlington, uh, Burlington Street, or... T- uh, uh, Tesla, Tesla Boulevard. Yeah, well, even... 70, I, I can, 120 down to 70, that's 50 kilometers an hour. I always, I always say, I, lo- I love watching F1 races. I, I, I've always wanted to ask a race car driver, after driving 300 kilometers an hour for, for two hours, <laughs> like, how long does it take them to decompress where they're not maybe being driven around, or, or do they drive home after the race? No, you make a you good know, point. It seem like they're... And, and I, think of, I think of another example locally, uh, coming off the 403 to Russo uh, Street in, in Ancaster, that ramp there, because you, you come off the 403 at the top of the hill, people are often zooming. I mean, sometimes it's jammed, so you're not zooming. People are yeah. zooming on the ramp, and they come off on, onto Russo, and there's a stoplight that's not far from there, and you're merging down into one lane of traffic. And I can't believe that there aren't more more accidents because many times I've been frightened being the guy driving straight along, maybe coming from the link, uh, uh, you know, golf links over, and yeah. thought, I'm going to get sideswiped here. This guy's driving like a maniac. And sometimes you have to hit the brakes and let that speedy be- driver in. Remember you know? before the Red Hill Valley, or sorry, the, the Lincoln Alexander was built, remember it had an off-ramp there to go on to the 403 yeah. off of Russo right. back in the day. Right. So yeah, you're right. And, and that's exactly my point, Jamie. As, as you know, I've talked about this before. I'm all about the harmony between all road users, pedestrians, cyclists, car drivers, um, also as a driving instructor for the police service and my highway traffic knowledge. I combine all of that when I talk and I take people out for drives and you know and i look at the message boards when when articles go out like this and i like to read what people say and a lot of people are saying you know well we need to charge the people that are out you know driving too slow in as everybody likes to call it the fast lane Mm. um you know and there are rules and 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 i do agree with some things about you know maybe we need to make our driver's exam a little bit more than just some questions and about some signs it's about people understanding you know why roads are designed you know how on ramps work how off ramps work about middle lanes where to move over if all that became better driving you know it might make a difference but right now when you just add speed to somebody who who's already a bad you know maybe not as a good driver and but then now they feel pressured to do 120 kilometers an hour things are happening way too fast for them and and those mistakes as we as all the articles say and as our reconstructions would say, speed is going to cause even more damage. No matter how safe cars are going to be, there's still going to be more damage, and, and that's um, people being injured, people maybe being killed, and uh, families being destroyed because of it. There's just too many other factors. I like people. If people drive on a posted 100 kilometer an hour speed limit posted road, they they do if they do a buck twenty, everybody. It's, it's the unwritten rule. People know it is. It, it's a Canadian thing or an Ontario thing. Or we'll, we'll do a buck you know, twenty, and you know what? But you know what they're thinking, Klaus. And I know you know this already. But they're thinking, 
they're not thinking about the safety thing at all when they make the decision that they're going to go above the speed limit. They're not thinking that. They're thinking about a couple of things. They're thinking about, I want to get there faster, but I want to do it at a speed that I'm less likely to get nailed by radar on. Mm-hmm. And sure. and within a range that maybe if I do get pulled over and nailed uh, by a police officer, that the officer might uh, lower the number uh, down into a range that won't hit me as hard on my demerit points or my pocketbook. I mean, that not that the truth about the way 100%. we think? I mean, as you know, everybody asks me all the time when I'm on why I want to wait. That's one of the questions. You know, well, what is kind of the limit? What, are, what do officers do and so forth and so on? And, uh, it's, you know, conversation at, the, you know, dinner parties or whatever, is that 20 kilometer, that magic number that way. But that's why, you know, unfortunately, insurance companies are, are now looking at when they see, even though you've got maybe four speeding tickets and they're all like 10 to 10 to 15 kilometers an hour because the officer dropped it down, they're starting to look at that because they know officers do drop it down. So they just say, you know what, you're speeding, you're speeding, and, and you're causing, you know, uh, danger to, to us as you, you as a policyholder and to other people out there. So sometimes they're not taking a look at the points anymore. It's just, you've got speeding tickets, we know you drive aggressively or drive fast, and you're going to make a difference that way. So is it the pocketbook that's going to make a difference on people? So the, the, the speed limit thing is then, is it safe to say that it's really, from your point of view as a law enforcement officer, a, a, a political thing? It's, it's really got... 100%. Okay. Um, yeah, because for us, you know, um, and one of the big things, like I said, because I'm taking all the things that I, when I look at things and when I take people for drives, um, I look at it this way, too. It's the way vehicles drive now, too. Right. If you have, if you have a good vehicle, like when, when I look at some of the cars that pass me on the highway when I'm on my own, like not driving in a cruiser, you know, they're, they're, uh, Sometimes these people don't feel the speed because the car runs so nice. I always look at, I always remember my dad. He used to, he used to be a Ford man, and he used to like <laughs> because he always said, it's so quiet. He said, see how quiet Fords are? But you take a look back, and you know, when you and I started driving, you felt every bump in oh, the yeah. road. Oh, yeah. you felt every, but you don't feel that anymore in cars. So when you're doing 120, you know, a lot, how many times do people say, I didn't even realize I was doing that fast? Oh, 140 well, like my, even. Like, Exactly, and that's what I'm saying. So, you know, and that's the problem. They're not slowing down then when they get into those slower areas. And, you know, Vision Zero, that's what all the, you know, the municipalities, the, 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 the previous uh, governments before this have all, you know, and Canada and the rest of the world is all this Vision Zero. You know, we're lowering speed limits in neighborhoods to 40 because it's been proven even just that 10 kilometers from 50 to 40 will be the difference from somebody maybe being killed to just maybe maybe being able to stop in time to or just being injured. So now we're adding the speed on the highway where it's even more devastating because it's not just one car that is going to be in that collision. It might be three or four because you're bouncing all, you're going through the, through onto the other oncoming, you know, all those different things could happen. I think you make a really good point about the vehicles. I've said that many times on the air here. We, we tend, it, the, the, the comfort and quietness of the interior cabins of vehicles nowadays, you add in the fancy uh, sound systems that are mm-hmm. come stock in them and all of that stuff. You 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 kind of have you get lulled into the sense that it's it's a comfortable couch on wheels, and and you forget that it's a that it's a death machine that has to be operated uh, properly and and with focus and and I think that really that really affects things and of course then you add in the distracted driving which I want to talk about in a second uh, to increase speed. Um, you got a you got a recipe for disaster there. I said to my wife the other day. I said, you know, I I see a time coming in the next decade, probably where the statistics are going to show that 
distracted driving or car accidents um, are going to be the number one cause of death across the board in our society if if we don't really smarten up. And I know the car companies are trying to make these cars drive themselves more and more. I suppose that'll that'll increase too. But just increasing speed limits or increasing posted speed limits that's not going to change anybody's behavior. No, and and like I and one of the things too that I notice and and what I always say to my kids when when they're driving with me is you know the reason there's traffic jams and stuff is because of driving behavior. It's people that wait to the last second to to squeeze yep. in at the end instead of moving in and you know so you're two cars behind but you moved in slowly. It's almost like I you know like a set of playing cards when you know when you when you shuffle a set of playing cards. If cars came in on ramps like that went off on off ramps and didn't hit the brakes till they got off on the off ramp or, you know, or, you know, and then going from lane to lane because it's, it's bumper to bumper. Well, going from lane to lane, if you ever watch those cars, you end up beside them at one point anyways, they're not doing anything. So all those little things would make the, the flow of traffic a little bit better that way. But we are very congested down in Southern Ontario. That's one of the big things too. When they, when they cite the, the, the speed limits in the States on the I highways, well, I've driven down in the States lots of times. I go, that's where I go vacationing. There, those are between big cities, and there isn't that, there isn't a bumper to bumper traffic right. the way there is because it's not in the city. Like Highway 403 goes through our city, goes all the way through Oakville, and, and you know it's resident. So it's it's a travel way where it's not going. So that makes a difference, and that's what people need to understand. And and so so again, there's another factor, and and you know. I, I I look at some of the thing, some of the things like the different as you're pointing out different types of, of roadways. You know, there's argument about whether uh, the link, for example, was poorly designed with the on ramps. There's a good argument to be made that those uh, the acceleration ramps or the collector ramps aren't uh, aren't proper. They're not they're not suited to the reality of the way uh, people drive. And in fact, they're probably uh, they're, they're probably a horrible design at the end of the day when we look at it. But but they are what they are, and are we have to drive these cars um, with focus uh, and with the rules of the road. And I want to come back to the point you made earlier, Klaus, which is you you question whether or not the driving tests are tough enough for people to to pass to get their license in this province. And and I would say to you, I think that's something that needs to seriously be looked at. Driver education uh, from the from the outset. And the toughness of those tests to pass, the scrutiny under which somebody uh, is placed in order to find themselves being given the privilege of a driver's license. 100%. Yeah. That is, that's what it says right in the act. It's a privilege to drive. Yeah. So let's talk a bit, little bit uh, about distracted driving. Because it, that's perfect. Can I just jump in quick on that? Yeah, go ahead. So it's, it's, it's Police Week, and that is one of the, that is the Ontario Chiefs of Police uh, Initiative for Police Week is distracted good. driving. Good. Okay, well, then let's have a good, long rant about that, um, <clears throat> because it, it makes me nuts, and I'm already half there, as many of my friends and family <laughs> will tell you. Um, <laughs> it is, uh, the, thing that bu- the thing that bugs me about it the most is that I don't see how you guys are ever going to be able to get a rope around it. Um, for us as society to put the burden on law enforcement officers to do blitzes, let's say, for distracted driving, give me a break. I mean, most cars are, have tinted windows. How are you guys supposed to see out of your vehicles or at roadside into somebody's vehicle and really most of the time be able to tell if they're they're texting or looking down at their phone or or whatever 
I mean, and, it's an impossible task to ask you guys to do. It is. Yeah, and it, it is one of the new things, too, where we do have officers now, you know, my, especially here in Hamilton, they're getting a hold of me. They're saying, Claus, what's the number for the tinted windows? You know, because it is becoming a problem now. And unfortunately, that, that, it doesn't say that. So I say, you have to be able to articulate. And the old school message that, that how I was taught and what I teach is, you know, put the driver's, like, give, have the person give the driver's license, have them open the door. If you can't read their license, you know, through, you know, a couple of, uh, uh, like, a, you know, your arm distance away, it's, you know, that's going to be how you're going to articulate in court why you gave them a uh, too too dark of a window uh, on the driver's side and stuff like that but it is because that's why we know people are doing it. it's because they're not you know it used to be because they don't want to wear their seatbelt and now it's because of you know they're going to be on their phones and like you said um, you know I like what you said earlier about is it do we have to guilt people into it because you know I mean I hear stories too I have um, uh, someone in my own family who has a, a ping pong paddle with a what they put on it is a you know, no cell phone. And when they see somebody on their cell phone, they hold it up at the window and they've had, you know, people yell and curse at them, you know, give them the finger, just laugh and drive away. So, you know, it's become a second nature, but as it's been proven, um, one of the studies in North America, so we're talking United States and us, 1.6 million uh, collisions can be directly contributed to cell phone use. Yeah. And, and distracted driving, and clearly that's where most of it's at, but people also have to remember that, You've got to stay, if you're driving a car, your job is to drive the car. Your job is not to get the kid's cookie that fell on the floor from the kid's car seat and reach back and do all of that stuff or to settle an argument between the two kids in the back seat. Are we there yet? And he touched me and blah, 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 blah. You're, you're, right? I mean, those are other, but those are other distractions, right? And the kids are fighting over what music's being played and they're pushing the buttons and it's like, hey, 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 you know, everybody calm down here. My traffic mentor said to me, the word drive is a verb. It's not a noun. <laughs> you know what I mean? You're driving the car. Uh, and you, and I, like what you said earlier, too, the couch scenario, because that's what I say when I speak at corporations throughout this province and, and, and down in the States is on risk driving. That's one of the things I said. No matter how hard car companies are trying to make cars basically mobile living rooms with TV sets and Wi-Fi now, and, you know, and they can mm. say all they want, just like the, just like the, 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 you know, uh, the liquor companies or the beer companies, you know, use our, use our product, but use it responsibly. And now the car companies are saying, you know, well, we have all that, but you can, you know, you can put the block on it. You can do this. And you, well, people don't because it's, you know, they want to be able to, you know, text. And, and then my biggest message has always been, especially for texting and driving is, have, who has ever received a text message that's so important? I don't think, Jamie, your wife's going to text you and go, there's somebody in the house. Yeah, right. Do you know what I mean? It's yeah. a text message. That's what 911 is you know, for. Exactly. You know what I mean? So, but it's becoming second nature to people. And then, and just like back in the day, they're starting to say, but I can handle it. You know, I, 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 I can do this. It's, you know, and there's, you know, the side there has the experts that'll say, oh yeah, people can do this. And then other, the other side says, no. well, I'm going to say to you right now, anytime we get aggressive drivers, or if you get somebody in front of you that doesn't take off from the stop sign right away or stoplight, or they're kind of weaving in their lane, you pull up beside them, they're on their phone because they're not being able to do what they're supposed to be able to do. Hmm. Yeah. And it's, I think it's a a societal issue. I think it's a social 
issue. I don't. I really don't view it as a law enforcement issue at all. I I, I need you guys out uh, rounding up the drug dealers and the violent crime and the gun people and taking care of all of that stuff. I I don't think this. It's fair to put all of this on law enforcement. I think we've got to, to be talking about it around dinner tables and on our back patios before anybody gets in the car, and we have to be having that conversation constantly. Uh, about uh, priorities and what's important and and guilting the hell out of each other about doing it, you know? Exactly, and and the right information, too. And that's where there's some confusion. So if I could just jump in quick. Remember, distracted driving for police, when you get a ticket for it, is cell phones, GPS, or, uh, you know, uh, or laptops and stuff. And and, uh, what you're seeing a lot of nowadays is people, you know, streaming Netflix as they drive down the road because it's bumper to bumper because they don't want to miss the last Game of Thrones or, or whatever it is. And, but when you hear commercials and you hear things they talk about eating and stuff, yes, that is also distracted as in it does take away from you driving the vehicle, those types of things. But it's not a distracted driving ticket. That would be a careless yeah. driving ticket. I want to make sure people get that point across that you shouldn't be doing it, you know, no, no matter, you know, that we, you know, we have cup holders and everything like that. But, you know, be, choose the time when you're going to take that drink of, of, milk, you know, of, a, of a coffee. It's not while you're going through an intersection where there's pedestrians and cars turning left and now you've got a hot coffee in your hand. Good point. You, have Good to, point. you know, think about those types of little things. That's what I suggest to people when I take them driving again is, you know, choose, what, you know, when you're going to do whatever you're going to do. Is this a bad section to do it? Because, you know, your likelihood to get into a collision at an intersection is higher without doing putting that distraction in, right. into your hand or into your eyes. We got to run. Klaus Wagner, as always, thanks so much for this. Thank you, Jamie. Take care. Bye for now. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. <laughs> what a... Uh... What a prophetic song that turned out to be. Everybody's working for the weekend. I mean, I know what the song is. You work to get to the weekend. That's what you're working for is to have fun on the weekends. But even the weekends have kind of kind of disappeared, if, if you know what I mean. Lots of us are working long after we punch out of that eight-hour shift, right, or that eight-hour stint in the office. Uh, and I think a lot of us feel pressure to be online and be available to work um, on the weekends and in our off hours, evening hours, whatever. And I think that's that's in, increased greatly. And I think the bosses <laughs> have benefited some somewhat from that. Uh, Katrina Onstead is a uh, Canadian journalist, and she's author of a book called The Weekend Effect. And um, we're talking about the call for tomorrow to be the day to disconnect. And uh, 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 a French wine brand, Felix and Lucy, (laughs) has said, let's pull the plug. Um, Let's drink some wine. (laughs) Why not? And let's not not be uh, engaging in work-related stuff on our smart devices after we've put in our hours. And uh, I want to say welcome to the program, Katrina. Hi, thanks for having me. Tell me about the weekend effect. Yeah, so I published this book a couple of years ago. Thanks for playing my theme music there uh, (laughs) called The Weekend Effect, where I took a long look at what happened to the weekend, what happened to our relationship to leisure and this encroaching work culture that we all seem to be trapped in. Um, So I was really excited to learn that this new French wine brand, Felix and Lucy, had commissioned new research um, about how Canadians are working. And guess what? We still have a lot of issues with work-life balance. Um, You actually alluded to one of the most alarming pieces of research that they uncovered, which was that, um, in fact, 
76% of salaried and self-employed workers surveyed are regularly doing work outside of traditional work hours, right? So that means like that work, those emails that you answer around the margins of your conversations or right. get up from the dinner table. Um, and that, that those little moments are adding up to eight extra hours a week, which means it's no longer a five-day work week. It's actually a six-day work week. This is a big problem. Well, it is because it interferes um, in a couple of things. It, it's, it can't be good for our mental health. I'm not an MD. I don't think you are either. Mm-hmm. But, but it can't. We know instinctively that it can't be good for our mental, emotional health to be dialed in all the time to the work stuff when we've got friends, family, our kids around us um, that we could and should be paying attention to and engaging with, right? Yeah, you know, you're exactly right. I mean, our anxiety levels uh, increase when we don't get that break from work. Um, physically, you can have, there's actually some studies around heart issues connected to overwork. Um, but, but this question of what happens to our relationships is huge, right? Like our social bonds do weaken, weaken if we don't have time to tend our relationships. If all our time is about tending our relationships with our, our uh, bosses and our colleagues, what about the other people uh, in our lives, right? Uh, one of the other pieces of research that Felix and Lucy uncovered was that 35% of salaried self-employed Canadians will cancel plans with friends or family to meet work obligations regularly, right? So think about that. I mean, it's like a third of the time you're bailing on people to do work, and that's a problem. Katrina, why do you think that we are doing that? I mean, that's a decision that we each make um, to, to, to do that or not. I mean, it would be I suppose it would be easy as, you know, the proposal is tomorrow, day to disconnect, to put the phone down somewhere where it's not around us, we can't see it or hear it, and just leave it be. Why are we making the decision to do all of this extra work? Right. Well, you know, it's not easy, right, to back away from work. Obviously, these are fragile economic times, right? We want to make sure that we are good employees. People have, this is important to people, Um but the presence of devices means that that hard out at 5 o'clock becomes really difficult to do. So, you know, workplaces can model good behavior. There's that. Um, and then we have to, I think, really start questioning our own use of free time when we're lucky enough to get it, mm-hmm. <laughs> which is uh, one of the you know, big ideas behind this initiative by Philly and Lucy to uh, have this day of disconnect tomorrow at 5, which I, th- I thought was really cool. What they're proposing is, like, just give it a try, right, at 5 o'clock tomorrow log off, disconnect from your computer, and go out and find something to do that helps you really connect with things that matter, right? Like, you know, that French joie de vivre. It's a French wine brand. (laughs) They're better at leisure than we are. So they're suggesting go, you know, curl up with a good book, have a glass of wine, do a hobby that you haven't done in a while. But just remember that you do have a life. You do have a self that exists outside of work. And try it and see how that feels. And maybe we'll kind of remember those parts of ourselves that often get so neglected when we're so obsessed with work. Yeah, it's very attractive. Uh, uh, but, you know, we, I think a lot of us suffer from FOMO, right, which is fear of missing out. <laughs> and we've become addicted to, to these devices. We, You know, we talk about social media addiction and so on and so forth. But I also think that we are... The FOMO effect gets in there. Fear of missing out on the promotion. So, in other words, we're, we're afraid... I think of how we're merchandising ourselves to our bosses. If we're not connected and other people are, then does that mean that we're worried that we're going to be viewed as less um, committed to the company, less committed to the, to the job. And therefore are we going to be viewed as less than when we go back to the office tomorrow? 
Oh, yeah. I mean, for sure, this is a huge issue. And it's, you know, uh, it's something that we all need to work on, right? The optics of busyness, right? Mm-hmm. There's a lot of power and kind of currency in looking busy. This is in Toronto. I don't know if this is happening in Hamilton. But when you say to somebody, how are you? The answer is busy. Yes. <laughs> right? And it's a bit of a it's true and we're tired, but it's also a bit of a power move, right? Like a lot of us kind of take our, our value is in how busy we are. So I think that we want to kind of examine that. If you know, we want people to really audit our relationship to work and say, why are we finding our value there? Can't we find some of our value and meaning in life in our relationships with other people and the pursuits that we have outside of work as well. But it is a big shift. You're right. It's not easy, but it's something that we need to start thinking about. I think uh, the stats speak for themselves. We've only got a minute here, but 35% of salaried and self-employed Canadians have canceled plans with family or friends to meet work obligations. As you said earlier, 43% believe that getting ahead at work requires work to be completed outside of of work hours. So, uh, yeah, it's a phenomenal thing, and I'm all for it. I'll be uh, pulling the plug uh, tomorrow uh, after uh, five o'clock and uh, yeah maybe i'll pour a glass of wine too and just sit and relax how's that excellent i'll be doing exactly the same thing <laughs> all right <laughs> katrina onstead canadian journal journalist and author of the weekend effect you can look it up online thanks for your time today thank you take care bye for now all right uh will erskine i expect that i'll be hearing from you if i email you tonight about tomorrow's show i expect you to drop everything and just work on that, okay? That's what you're expected to do around here. But the next day I get to not do that? <laughs> yeah, I guess. Whatever. The Scott Thompson Show. Weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.